Every country has them. Legends. That's local legends. You know, myths, stories that are built up regarding a place or perhaps a person. I come from a country that has one of the best legends. That's Scotland. The Loch Ness Monster. What would the Scottish economy be without Loch Ness and the mystery that surrounds the monster that lives within it? Do you know this has been a legend from the 6th century? And you know how a legend starts? One person says, I know someone who knows someone who knows someone who saw something in Loch Ness. Swear by it. Today, people will say, I visited Loch Ness. I took a photo, and I've got an image of a shadow in the water. And and this legend is built up. And there are many people today who believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Never ask me to deny the myth of the Loch Ness Monster. It's good for Scotland. Listen, in, in first century Jerusalem, there was a legend. It surrounded the Pool of Bethesda. If you were to look at the footnote that we didn't read... It'll tell you what the legend was. The legend was an angel would come from time to time, stir up the water, and if you got into the water first, you would be healed, cured of your diseases. We'll come back to the legend in just a moment. But let me say this. As we begin looking at John chapter 5, we are coming to a very crucial passage in John's gospel. Here the conflict rises. Here everything escalates. Here in this passage we find the reason why the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead. As we're going to see, they will accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer because he claims equality with God. And we're going to look at this passage in two halves. Verses 1 through 9, we're going to see Jesus' encounter with this lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And then in verses 9 through 18, we're going to see the second half, Jesus' encounter with this man and the Jewish leaders in the temple. As I was studying this passage, I asked this passage four questions this week. Where is it set? Where is this healing set? How did this healing happen? When did it happen? And what were the responses to it? So very simply, we're going to look at the where, the how, the when, the what. So let's look at the where. Verses 1 to 3, John sets the scene for us, and it opens with these words, after this, meaning after Jesus' previous sign, back in John chapter 4, when he healed the royal official son in Cana, after this, Jesus went to Jerusalem. And John tells us why Jesus went to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem because there was the Feast of the Jews. Now, you might read that and not think there's anything odd about that. But there is something slightly odd. Every other time that John mentions that Jesus attended a feast in this gospel, he tells us which feast it was. But here, he withholds that information. He doesn't disclose the identity of this feast. Why? Because as we're going to see later, it's not that there was a feast going on that's the the big thing. It's that it was the Sabbath. 
Now, next, John says in verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five rift colonnades. Now, Jesus in Jerusalem, he's there for a feast. The last time we met Jesus in Jerusalem for a feast, it was the Feast of Passover, it was chapter 2, and remember what he did? He cleansed the temple. So in our heads, we've already got this pattern, Jesus, Jerusalem, temple. And yet we pick up this passage and Jesus is not in the temple. Now, John's very specific about where Jesus was. He was at the Sheep Gate. Presumably the, the entrance in the north of the city where the sheep would be brought in for sacrifice at the temple. But he's not at the sheep gate. Look at what John says. He says he's at the pool next to the sheep gate. And the name of the pool was Bethesda, which in the original means house of Hesed, house of mercy. And just as you're beginning to, to, to Familiarize yourself with your surroundings. John wants you to clearly picture this place in your mind's eye because he says it had five roofed colonnades. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? And just as you're beginning to conjure up in your imaginations the beauty of the architecture of this building that surrounded this pool, John quickly draws our attention away and says... Don't look at the outside. Look at what's going on inside. Look at verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. What a ghastly sight. Have you ever been on a mission trip? Maybe a gap year to a really poor and impoverished country? Have you ever visited a accident emergency in a makeshift hospital in a place in the world that's got a high concentration of suffering sickness this is the sort of scene that you would be greeted with well well this is what the, the scene that jesus was greeted with when he came to this pool near the sheep gate a makeshift hospital you know what it's like when you're in the, the, these sort of places you've got people moaning in their beds in pain Some stumbling around, others sitting very still, but all have the same problem. They're all in desperate need of help and healing. Now just as John wants us to picture all these invalids, notice he tells us how many they were. He says there was a multitude. That is, there were too many to count, too many to keep track of. So as you picture inside the, the structure with all of these invalids, there's just too many to count. Now the question comes, why were they here? Well, this is where the local legend comes in. You see, legend had it that from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down to this pool and they would stir it up. It would literally become like a a bubbling jacuzzi. And if you are first into the pool, you would be healed of your disease or disability. Now, when I was saying earlier about the the, the verse, it's not there, and I was um, reminding us that we can trust the Bible, its veracity, its integrity. Recent archaeological excavations in Israel have 
discovered the pool of Bethesda. And one of the things that they've discovered is that it was most likely fed by some natural springs in the ground. So that would cause the water to bubble from time to time. And you might think those poor gullible people to fall for a legend like this. Don't be too hard or harsh on them. Many of your friends, many of your colleagues, many of your neighbors hold legends and superstitions. Hardly a week goes by and you're watching the telly, watching a football match, and you'll see football players superstitious as ever. The way they walk onto the park, the rigmarole they'll go through, all in the hope that if they do it right, then they'll have a blessed game, a good game. Many of my friends have visited Lourdes in the south of France because that water's got healing power. Now, these people were in desperate need of desperate help, and so it's understandable that they would all gather here in the hope that they might be the first to get into the water and to be healed. So that's the where. That's where the scene is set, but let's now look at how this miracle happened. In verse 5, John zooms into one man. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Years. You know, a single person that made up this multitude had a sad story to tell, no doubt. A sad story of suffering. John singles out one man. Because Jesus will single this man out. I only learned this this week, but in the first century, life expectancy was about 38. That means that this man had reached his life sell by day, and he was, we are told, an invalid. We don't know exactly what his problem was, but it's clearly there was something wrong with his movement. Most likely he was a cripple. He never walked for 38 years. That's longer than I've been alive. And that's hard for us to imagine, to, to enter into And I don't imagine that there was much fun to be had sitting by a pool waiting for the waters to stir, knowing that you can't move there quickly so you'll never be first, but always last in line. By all accounts, this man's story was a tragic one. For 38 years, year after year, presumably he sat beside this pool wanting to get in first But year after year, the opportunity passed by him. You imagine sitting in a dock surgery for longer than five hours and no one coming to you. It's difficult. It's draining. It's tough. Can you imagine sitting 38 years in this makeshift hospitals waiting for healing? Now here's the amazing thing that this passage is going to teach us. When Jesus Christ comes on the scene, no situation is hopeless and no person is helpless. Look at the amazing compassion of Jesus in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there for a long time. Just, Just notice, John says two things here. Jesus saw him. That is, he didn't ignore him. He wasn't blind to him. In fact, out of all of this multitude, Jesus saw him. 
The one who had suffered for 38 years long. And, and, and then we're told Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he'd been there a long time. How did Jesus know? Well, if you've been reading through John's gospel, Jesus knows things because he is the son of God. Now, we've just sung a song that says to us in Psalm 139, God knows us through and through. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So Jesus knew this man's past. He knew this man's pain. He knew this man's present predicament. He knew his sins. He knew his struggles. He knew his story. Every chapter, every twist, every turn. And he didn't only know it, but he felt something in light of it. Compassion. Compassion is love that is moved to action. One of the things the scriptures revealed to us about Jesus is he does not move away from people with struggles and sins and problems. He moves towards people in that position because he's a sympathetic high priest. It's interesting, right? The feast The preparations are going on in the temple courtyard and here is the true high priest and he's down in the makeshift hospital. Now let me show you how how compassionate Jesus is. He says to this man, look at the end of verse 6, do you want to be healed? Now, Now you might hear that question and think, what a silly question to ask this man. Like he's sitting in the place where everyone's sitting because they want healing. His circumstances, his context, they all tell us that he wants to be healed. This is a painfully obvious question with a painfully obvious answer. But hold up. Let me repeat what I've just said. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And this is what Jesus knows. Jesus knows what you don't know about yourself but what you really need to know. Jesus knows what you don't know about yourself, but you really do need to know. Jesus didn't ask this question for his own benefit. He asked this question for this man's benefit. Jesus was going to show this man his greatest problem is not his physical condition, but his spiritual condition. Do you know what this man's problem was? It's the same problem that many of us have got in this room. His problem was this. He put his hope in the wrong place and in the wrong person. He hoped that if he could just get into these so-called healing waters, stirred up by the angel, he would be healed. Wrong place. He put his hope that maybe someone would come and help him and take him to the water so that he would get in first. Wrong people. It was feast time and this is a time when everybody would be rehearsing Israel's history, reminding themselves of Israel's promises that there is a Messiah, but this man's hope was not in the Messiah. In fact, you know one of the stunning ironies to this passage, this man has standing in front of him the Messiah and he does not know it. Jesus compassionately asks this man this question, do you want to be healed? 
Now, you think he wants to be healed? Now, here's a question for you, right? Have you ever put your hope in a person or in circumstances and they've let you down? And you've done it again. And the same thing's happened again. You hope that they'll change. You hope that they'll make good in what they say. You hope the circumstances will work out for good, but they don't. And it's disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Do you know what happens to a soul that goes through that experience? It shrivels. It loses expectation. It stops hoping. It starts accepting the reality. And it becomes comfortable with, with it. When Jesus asked this question, do you want to be healed? This question is full of power. It's full of promise. It's full of purpose. And this is what Jesus is implicitly saying to this man. You can be healed in me. Change is possible. Do you want to be healed. Some of us, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we really want change in our lives. Let's just be really honest. Year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day, we go through so many of the same things, hoping only to find that our hopes are dashed because our hope's in the wrong person. Our hope's in the wrong place. Now, you might be sitting here and say, okay, Andy, I do deeply long for change. But here's my problem. I don't believe change is possible for me and Jesus. And don't worry, you're in good company because that was the problem with this man. Look at verse 7, his answer to Jesus' question. The sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps, while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, this man's answer reeks with hopeless resignation. Notice that he doesn't even answer Jesus' question. Instead, with this hopeless man does he gives a list of reasons why he can't be healed why his life can't be changed reason number one i have no one i am alone no one wants to help me no one cares for me problem is that's not true jesus is with him right in front of him. Hope stares him in the face. Reason number two he gives. While I'm going down, another steps down before me. In other words, everyone else is life better than him. Everyone else is better off. You know when you lose hope, that's what you start doing. You start looking at other people's lives and you start thinking, they've got better than me. Your soul starts to shrivel and you become so self-pitying. You wallow in doubt and you struggle with sinful unbelief. This man, in response to Jesus' question, do you want to be healed, says to Jesus, in essence, I can't be healed. Now, 
This is the most remarkable thing ever. I mean, ever. Because you read through the Gospels, and every time Jesus heals a person, it's often in response to their faith, right? They knew who he was, they asked him, they cried out for mercy. Not so here. This man's got no faith whatsoever. He's got a sinful, self-pitying, unbelieving heart. He looked in instead of looking out, but look at what Jesus does. Jesus says to him, get up. Pick up your bed and walk. And John says, at once he was healed. We've seen the amazing compassion of Jesus. Now we see the amazing power of Jesus. With a word, he speaks and makes this man well. He didn't ask for it. He didn't do anything to earn it. And yet Jesus gave him it. There's a word for that in the Christian vocabulary. It's grace. Getting what you don't deserve. Here's this man in the house of mercy. And he receives mercy. And he didn't even cry for it. Even though this man was blind to who Jesus was, Jesus was not blind to him, nor indifferent to his predicament. Jesus said to him, get up. You know the pool of Bethesda? It was first come, first served. You know the kingdom of Jesus and the house of Hesed? If you're the least, if you're the last, if you're lost, he'll give you what you need. Now I need to ask you and I a question. This, this encounter that Jesus had with this man is a parable of what you and I are like. You see, what he was physically, we are spiritually. That is spiritually blind, we don't see who Jesus is. Spiritually deaf, we don't hear what Jesus says. Spiritually paralyzed, we don't ask Jesus for what we ought to ask Jesus. But Jesus delights to take spiritually dead people and make them live. He loves to give life. Now, I, I can't help but just imagine, just, just indulge me for a moment, what this moment must have been like when this man received the ability to walk. See, if you've been sitting for 38 years with, without the ability to walk, right? Presumably your legs would shrivel to nothing. No muscle, little circulation, joints completely seized up. You know, if I sit in a car for five hours, right, I can barely walk when I get out of the car. This man hadn't walked for eight years. Jesus says, get up, he picks up his mat and he walks. Can you imagine that moment where he wiggled his toes, where he lifted his foot, where he bent his knee, and it worked? And if, if, if you can imagine that moment, can you remember the verse in the Old Testament that says that the marker of the Messiah is the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. Isaiah 35 verse 6. You see, in this encounter that Jesus has with this man, Jesus is revealing himself to be the Messiah. He's ushering in his kingdom. And in his first coming, he's giving a first taste of what is to come in his salvation. He will restore people, body and soul, on his second coming. 
That's the hope of every Christian. You might be physically suffering, struggling. The hope of the gospel is there is coming a day when he will make us whole. But he can make you whole right now spiritually. Make you alive. Give you life. What you desperately need. Your problem is you might not know what you ought to know, but he knows it. That's why he's asking you, do you want to be healed? Now, we come to the second half of the story. We're going to move very quickly, but you know, every good story has a twist. This story has a twist. Verse 9 says, right after this man's healed, just when you're wanting to rejoice and you're wanting to punch your fist in the air, verse 9b says, now, that day was the Sabbath. Just, just imagine I had a best friend. He spent all of his life from birth in a wheelchair. I go to my best friend's house one day, knock on his door, and to my total surprise, he opens the door and he's standing and he says, Andy, one minute, he bolts up the stairs and he comes back down carrying his wheelchair. And he begins to tell me, I've been healed, my life has changed. And just imagine my response is this, David, it's the Sabbath, you're breaking the Sabbath, put the wheelchair down. I'm like, what? Andy, you should be celebrating David's walking. This man comes walking with his bed. This man comes showing that he, he, he's, he's been changed. He's been healed. And the Jewish leaders see him and they miss the miracle and they see in their minds the Sabbath law is broken. He's carrying his bed. Now you remember the verse in the Old Testament that says, do not carry on the Sabbath. No, you don't. Because <laughs> there is no verse that says that in that way. So what's happening? Well, just very quickly, we've seen when it's happened. Let's just look at responses to what has happened. The man who clearly has just had his life changed, he, we find him actually in verse 14. He's in the temple. And... Um, after this by these Pharisees, you know, is it lawful for you to be walking? He says, the man who healed me, it was him who told me to pick up my bed. And Jesus finds this man, because he's not revealed himself fully to this man yet, and, and he finds him in the temple, and I, want you, I don't want you to miss this. This man would have never been in the temple, at least not for 38 years, because he was unclean. And what's he doing in the temple? Well, we can only speculate, but he's probably there praising God for the mercy he's received. And um, he's responding appropriately. He's rejoicing. And, and, and I want you to see that Jesus really does care about this man's response. Jesus says to him, first a word of grace. He says to him, see, you are well. Word of grace. Behold, you have been made well. And Jesus is saying to him, he did nothing. God did everything. He didn't deserve it. He got it in the house of mercy by the merciful Savior. But Jesus then had this line, and this has totally puzzled students of the Bible for, for ages, and it still puzzles us. He says to them, sin no more, that nothing worse might happen to you. And here's what everybody goes, they say, this man must have sinned, and this sin led him to be crippled. And so Jesus is saying, don't sin again, or something worse is going to happen to you in this life. I actually think that this is a case of gospel indicative. I've changed your life. 
Now here's the gospel imperative. Don't go live a life of sin. Your greatest problem wasn't your physical problem. Your greatest problem is your spiritual problem. And when Jesus says that nothing worse might happen to you, I need to be really honest here. 38 years as a cripple sounds awful. What about eternity without Jesus suffering his judgment? Jesus has given this man both a a, a glorious word of grace and he's giving him a reminder, a command, the gospel indicatives flowing from them are gospel imperatives. Live a life of holiness. Grace fuels holiness. That's the right response. And brothers and sisters, if you've experienced the grace of God, our response is to go and seek to live for Christ. Now, final response. It's the response of the Jewish leaders. Their response is, it is not lawful for this man to take up his bed and walk. Now, everything Jesus does in John's gospel is deliberate. It's intentional. It's purposeful. He deliberately healed this man on the Sabbath. He deliberately said to this man, and take up your bed. He know, he knew the Jewish laws, the traditions that they had added. You can't carry anything on the Sabbath. Jesus, this is all deliberate. This is an accident. This isn't coincidental. This is a God incident. He's setting this up for controversy. And when they discover from the man who's been healed, and by the way, when he says it was Jesus who told me to take up his mat, I love what we might just get an insight into there. This man discovers it's Jesus who's got authority of, over what happens on, on the Sabbath. Well, these Pharisees come. And we read in verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working now. As we wrap this up, I need to ask you, do you see what this sign is pointing to? Do you see what this sign is pointing to? Do you know why Jesus came into this world? To bring about an eternal Sabbath of rest. In the garden, Adam and Eve, if they had lived in God's ways, obeyed God's law, they would have known an eternal Sabbath of rest. But Genesis 3, they didn't. And Jesus comes and his purpose is to bring about an eternal Sabbath rest for his people. Because Jesus is the God of the Sabbath. And you know, there's no better day to do healing than on the Sabbath. Because you know what the Sabbath's about? Restoration, renewal, recreation. That's why the Sabbath for us is the, is the Sunday, it's the Lord's Day, it's the day of resurrection. Now here's the amazing thing. Jesus was ushering in his purposes. This sign on the Sabbath was pointing, he's ultimately coming to make people whole and well and give what they desperately need. And yet when these Pharisees debate with Jesus, they want to have a legal debate. And Jesus says, no, let me get personal. Do you know who I am? My father and I are working. Meaning, my father and I are one. This question, to me regarding the Sabbath, I'm the one who said in the garden, Jesus says in essence, I'll bless the seventh day and make it holy. He's the one who gave the law in Sinai. And he's the one who says to this man, take up your bed and walk.
The Sabbath is his day for his purposes. And so on this Christian Sabbath, can I ask you one question? Do you want to be well? Do you want healed? Where's your hope? Has your soul shriveled? Are your eyes, your spiritual eyes blind? Are your ears deaf? Jesus says, in me, your life can be changed. That's what today is all about. Receiving the Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that as we study your word, we see you for who you are and for what you have come, what you came in this world to do. We thank you that even our understanding of salvation is so small, and yet in the scripture it is huge. It's not just life-changing, it's universe-changing. And we thank you that your glorious purpose in coming was so that we, your people, could come to know your mercy, and we could find rest and restoration and renewal. And you know that you know us better than we know ourselves. And there are many of us in this room who are spiritually sick. We're spiritual invalids and we need life. And so we pray that you would grant us the faith to believe. That you would give us the life that we desperately need. And there are those of us who know you and who love you. And yet we have failed to live for you in the way that you want for us. And so we pray that on this Christian Sabbath, you might renew our thinking and that you might remind us those who have received grace have the fuel to live a life of holiness. We pray that as we go from here, we would go with souls that are full, rejoicing in our Savior, because we pray this in his precious and powerful name. Amen.